Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. We're going to be in uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 and following tonight. I I love the book of Galatians. Um, Galatians and Ephesians probably are two of the books that I enjoy going to as much as any. As I said uh, this morning, uh, uh, Galatians is kind of like the cliff notes of the book of Romans. Uh, Paul gives a much more extensive detail uh, in the book of Romans than he does in Galatians. But uh, I I love it because, uh, quite honestly, if Martin Luther had not uh, seen the truth of the, we, the just shall live by faith, uh, we would all still be uh, taking sacraments and doing other things, and we've just been liberated from that through the Reformation and what's happened in evangelical circles. Uh, but I, I want to open this under the, the topic of He Sets the Captive Free, just talking about something that I think is important as you talk about some of the main things that are in Galatians. Because if we don't kind of make this overview, then I think sometimes we end up putting ourselves in pockets. Uh, as, as a pastor and as somebody that's walked around the track a few times, um, I know that all of us like boxes, Uh, We like to get a box that we're comfortable with. We like to get a seat that we're comfortable with. We uh, we like to get uh, an area where we're comfortable. We just, we get in our comfort zone. You know, we go to a restaurant, we kind of like the same thing. When when I go to a restaurant with Jim McBride, I know what he's going to eat uh, because he's disciplined. Uh, we, We all think he's in a rut, but he is disciplined because he gets the same thing every time. If he goes to one place, it's orange peeled chicken. He goes to another place, it's filet, and we always know. And I can basically order for him. I think one of the things that happens with us in our faith is that we can begin to get comfortable in a way that we want everything to be convenient and packaged, and we want really to take Honestly, at our core, we want to take the mystery out of faith. We want a God we can figure out and a God we can explain and a God with easy answers. And I'm just going to tell you, he's not in this book. This book right here will suck you through a keyhole, and it'll make you believe and have faith when you don't have answers to believe that God knows even when you don't know. And so uh, knowing that we all like that, I I just want to point out something to you. I've been here 17 years. There's not a one of you that knows for sure whether I believe in a pre-trib, mid-trib rapture. And that's two different interpretations. I've preached through the book of Galatians, and I've preached through 1 Thessalonians, and you still don't know. And there's a reason why you don't know, because there's room for interpretation. The truth of the matter is, we may all be wrong about the second coming. Only the Father knows. Jesus doesn't even know the day or the hour. And anybody that's arrogant enough to say, I know how it's all going to work out, and I've got this chart in the back of my Schofield Bible, and it tells me this is what's going to happen. Well, you've got a chart, but that doesn't necessarily mean that God's got to go by your chart. That chart was drawn by men. 
The amazing thing about the Bible is the Bible is a story of God's love. It's not a system. It's not an outline. It's not a box. It's a story. It is, if you will, God's love story of how he wants fellowship with man and what he provided for man to do that. I figure if it was good enough that they were first called Christians in Antioch, if it was good enough for Peter and Andrew and James and John, it's kind of okay for me. You know, what did God do before we got labels? The only label that God has in the Bible is saved and lost. That's the only label he's got. You're either saved or you're lost. And one of the things that happens to us is we try to pigeonhole somebody and say, oh, they're like this or oh, they're like that. And I want to tell you what it is. That's the spirit of I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, and then the group that says, well, I'm of Jesus and I'm better than all of y'all. And Paul said, y'all stop that nonsense. Just quit doing it. Now, why am I saying that? Because I think we can get captive to idolatry and not know it. Idolatry is thinking, I have come up with something, or I have something, or I've read something, and that something defines who I am. And by defining who I am, I begin to be more focused on who I have defined myself to be than focused on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's idolatry. It's also ultimate arrogance. You see, I can't read my favorite authors all the time because if I don't watch it, now listen to me, if I don't watch it, if I only read the people I want to read, if I don't watch it, I'll believe what they believe because they believed it, not because God's put it in my heart by the Spirit who reveals truth to all men. And I'll begin doing what this church did when I first came here in 1990. And I had somebody walk up to me and said, Bill Gothard says that God says. Well, last time I checked, I don't have to go through Bill Gothard to find out what God says. Some people think you've got to go through John Piper to find out what God says. Some people think John MacArthur. Some people think John Stott. Some people think Ron Dunn. I don't have to go through Vance Havner to find out what God said. In fact, I disagree with Vance Havner on some things. That may shock you. Isn't it amazing how we like to say, okay, you go over here and you get in this little cubby hole and you go over here and you get in this little cubby hole and we're going to label you and tag you. Listen, folks, labels are good for mailing packages. They're not good for believers who are trying to live in a real world. Okay? They're good for packages. Here's a church and they've got a label. They got a group over to the side and they are passionate about their label and they're called legalists. And Paul tells them, if I can just be so crude, shut up. Get over that and get back to the truth of the gospel. Now, if, if we are not careful, we can make an idol out of what we do. I, I have a friend who only because I asked him and pressed him told me. He said, I'm a five-point Calvinist. I only know that because I asked him that. 
And I have a friend who told me, he said, when people ask me if I'm that, I say, you know, all I do is read the Bible. Y'all go get your systems. But here's what he told me. And it's the most revolutionary thing I've heard on this area. He said, anytime you get a system, I don't care whether it's pre-millennial, whether it's mid-trib, post-trib, amillennial, whether it's Calvin or Arminian, anytime you get a system, whether it's Pentecostal or Baptist, anytime you get a system, you ultimately ultimately have to ask and answer questions that the Bible does not answer. And so you have to come up with an answer to fill in the blanks to your own questions. And then you start believing the answers to your own questions rather than living by faith. And then what you do is you ultimately end up developing a theology that you cannot back up scripturally. You can only back up because other people agree with you. I can feel strongly both ways. I really can. I can see the mystery of God, and I can see the balance of God, and God is not out of balance. But there are times when it looks like God's out of balance, and when I can't figure that out, I just say, you know, Lord, you're in charge, and I'm not. Last time I checked, there's no vacancies in the Trinity. And since there aren't, I'll let you sit on the throne. I like what Bill Stafford says. You know, you ask me my theology, it's Jesus. You ask me my commitment, it's Jesus. I'm not a creedal person. I don't believe in honoring creeds because creeds are written by men. They are vital and important to our church history. But they are not without error, infallible, authoritative, inerrant. Only the Word is inerrant and authoritative. Only the word. Am I making sense? And why am I saying all that? Because these legalists in Galatians were just as sincere and as passionate about their system as some of us get about ours. I've got friends who are in a charismatic background. I do not know whether they speak in tongues or not because I've never had the discussion. I don't ask and they don't push it. But I remember growing up in the 60s when people would come to me and say, oh, if you don't have this gift, you don't have the Holy Spirit. And you know what my answer was then? My answer was then what it is in 2007. Well, I know for a fact from his writings and from his statements that Billy Graham does not speak in tongues. Are you telling me he doesn't have the Holy Spirit? Or did I miss something? There's no record that Jesus ever did. So, you know, do I need something that Jesus didn't need? Because we're supposed to be like him. I mean, if you want to take this and just apply it in 10,000 different directions, it works. That's why I like what Warren Rearsby says, blessed are the balanced. Because they learn how to trust God. And they learn that, you know, the... Let me tell you the smartest thing I ever tell anybody. I don't know. Because if I thought I knew, I'm not as smart as I think I am. I don't know. And the truth of the matter is, whether you get saved when you're seven years old or whether you get saved when you're 70 years old, wherever you are and however long you're a Christian, you are in process. 
And every one of us, somewhere when we first got saved, you know what we did? Somebody told us, if you keep the rules, you'll be spiritual. We said, that sounds good. That sounds good. So I keep the rules. All right, which rules do I keep? Okay, I keep these rules. And then you went to another church and say, well, we got a different set of rules. Oh, different set of rules. Okay, so if I keep the old rules and then I keep the new rules, does that really make me spiritual? Now you're really growing. And we were miserable. Why? It is easy for a new believer to get caught up into legalism. And it's easy for a Christian who has been around for a while to get caught up in something that makes us think, you know, we really do know more than a lot of other people. We, we really are smarter than most people. We have a secret that they don't know about. I'm sorry. I'm going to live and die and never get beyond Jesus because he's sufficient. Paul says... Uh, you legalists have been adding a system to these new believers and you're not helping them. In fact, you need to stop it because it's not the truth of the gospel. You may be sincere, and they were. They were sincere. They were trying to make good Christians out of these people by making them good Jews and then good Christians. I mean, they were working hard to, to, to get the system in place, but the system was killing them. And so Paul confronts it. And it is just as dangerous to be unbalanced, listen to me, as it is unbiblical. Because whether you are unbalanced or unbiblical, they both can lead to heresy. Because you run your rabbit far enough in an unbalanced theology and you'll end up in a place where you've got a God that doesn't look anything like the God of the New Testament then you've got to create a God that looks like the God you want him to look like and that's idolatry very confusing and I may have confused all of you but I'm just telling you this is if the devil can't get us to fight about worship he'll get us to fight about theology that's his battle Where God is clear, I'm going to be clear. Where God leaves it open to mystery, I'm going to leave it open to mystery. And I think that's my humble and accurate opinion, which I highly respect. I think that's the best way to live. So let's look at the purpose of the law. Galatians chapter 2 verse 16 says, Some of you think you can be saved by keeping the law. You drop down to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10. Some of you think you can be kept by keeping the law. But if you're right by Galatians 3.10, Romans 3.20, because of the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You see, the law reveals our sinfulness. The law reveals our sinful. It's kind of like one of those signs that, you know, if you ever driven through, if you ever driven through Atlanta, you've driven through road work. I mean, how long does it take to fix an interstate? You know, I mean, how many, I, I, I bet I've told Terry this a million times. If I just had patented orange and white barrels, I mean, how many of those are there in America? 
And, you know, you go by these signs, and there are these big signs. they got these little digital readouts. And, you know, you'll see a sign that says, speed limit strictly enforced, 50 miles an hour. And you're going, and your radar detector's on, and you're just saying, oh, bless God for a radar detector and a wall where a cop can't be on that side. Just going down. And that little sign all of a sudden goes, 67. And you keep going, and nobody pulls you over. But you know what? You broke the law whether you got caught or not. You see, the sign says, this is what you're supposed to be doing. The next sign says, this is what you are doing. And when they don't match up, you're breaking the law. Whether you get caught or not. The law reveals our sinfulness. It shows us that we're sinners. You cannot read Romans 3. In fact, I want you to turn to the book of Romans chapter 7. Romans 3, verses 13 through 18. Paul gives a penetrating revelation of how lost we really are. The Jews were guilty of violating the Mosaic law. The Gentiles were guilty of violating the law written on their hearts, Romans 2, 11 through 15. And then in Romans 7, 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. Remember, we talked about that term a couple of messages ago. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous is good. All Paul says there is that when I saw the law, it revealed that I was a sinner. I saw my sinfulness. I saw my wretchedness before God. The law showed me that I was, that it was holy and I was not. That's all he's saying. The next is the power of the cross. And we read verses uh, six this morning and, and let's pick up again in verse 10. For as many as are the works of the law are under the curse as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the spirit through faith. Now, what we're going to look at here is that Paul is bombarding these legalists with Old Testament references. Nothing like using somebody's own words to turn them and say, you're misinterpreting what that says. You don't understand what that says. And that's what Paul is doing here because he's going back, remember, to that phrase that we've talked about over and over in this series, the truth of the gospel. He says, we are justified before God. That's the opposite of being condemned before God. How are we justified? We're justified by faith. Now hold your place in Galatians and turn to John chapter 17 and verse 3. I believe that John 17, 3 is the best definition of eternal life that you can find in the Bible. 
I could be wrong in that. I just believe it's a great definition of eternal life. John 17 and verse 3. If you want to know about eternal life, find out what Jesus said. This is what Jesus said, John 17, 3. This is, not it might be, not it could be, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It doesn't get much simpler than that. What's eternal life? Knowing God. It's not knowing an outline. It's not knowing a system. It's not knowing a denominational preference. It's not knowing an interpretation. What is eternal life? Eternal life, Jesus said, if you think you can improve on Jesus, go ahead. Jesus said eternal life is knowing God. Simple. Is that okay with you that Jesus, eternal life is knowing God? Eternal life is not being baptized. Eternal life is not adding the sacraments. Eternal life is not not memorizing a creed. Eternal life is knowing God. He, He says this is how you know what eternal life is, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. So how do I know God? I know God through Jesus Christ. Jesus reveals the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so I can't be in fellowship with God until I have the favor of God. And if I have the favor of God, I can be in fellowship with God. But I can't be in favor with God. I can't have fellowship with God until I know the Father. And the only way I know the Father is through the Son. So Paul and Jesus are in agreement. Now, some people believe there are some television preachers that are very popular. They have big charts behind them when they preach. They believe that there is a salvation for the Jews that is separate from the salvation for the Gentiles. That there are two ways that people are saved. You got saved one way in the Old Testament. You got saved another way in the New Testament. That's not what the Bible teaches. You read the book of Hebrews and know that's not what the Bible teaches. It was by faith, by faith, by faith. It wasn't by law, by law, by law, by law. It was by faith. It was by faith for Abraham. It was by faith for Moses. It was by faith for Noah. It was by faith for Abraham and Noah before there was ever any law. So how can you say you're saved by the law when people were saved by faith before the law ever came into existence in written form? There are not two ways to get saved, but there are people that try to do that. And it seems like it if you just do a flippant reading of verses 11 and 12. So let's look at it. Verse 11, Galatians 3, verse 11. The righteous man shall live by faith. He's quoting Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. Verse 12. The law is not of faith. He who practices them shall live by them. Leviticus 18.5. Now, if you look at verse 12 and you look at verse 11, both of them say, he shall live by. If you're just blowing by that and you're not paying attention and you're just trying to get to the next verse real quick, all of a sudden you'll be thinking, okay, the righteous man shall live by faith and then the law is not by faith, but he who practices them, he will live by them. Okay, so maybe some people who practice the law, they get it. They get saved. That's not what he says. So let's look at it. 
These two statements are different. Verse 11 describes the road of a believer who is blessed by God. The just shall live by faith. Verse 11 describes the one that makes faith the way of salvation. Verse 12 is the road of the doer who is cursed by the law and condemned by the law. This person makes works the way of salvation. So verse 11, Paul says, if you want to be saved, if you want to live a sanctified life, you live it by faith. And you do not work your way to salvation. That's what verse 12, people that read, oh yeah, that's, you can get saved two ways. You can be good. You've heard it. You've talked to somebody. Well, I just believe when I get to heaven that there's going to be this set of scales there. And there's going to be uh, marbles on this side, marbles on that side. And if my good marbles are better than my bad marbles, and if I don't lose my marbles, I will get to heaven when I, uh, because my good marbles outweigh my bad marbles. Where in the world did anybody get that idea? By not reading the Bible. Because the Bible says you're cursed if you try to live by keeping law because you can't do it. We talked about that in the last message. Go back to verse 10. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. He's quoting there Deuteronomy 27, 26. Now remember, he just keeps laying it out to them, going back to the law, to the Torah, and saying the Torah doesn't say what you think it says. You need to interpret it in light of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, Jesus was cursed. He was an outcast. He was outside the law to pay for our sins. He was cursed and condemned to die. The sinless, perfect Son of God condemned to die. Verse 13 and 14, he says, you are cursed. So how do we get the curse off of us? By going to the one who took the curse for us, who was condemned in our place. That word curse means to reject or to renounce. Now there's a long quote coming up on the screen that I want you to see, and the reason I'm doing this is because I think it's a very good summary statement here. Christ was not cursed because he was crucified. Rather, he willingly allowed himself to become cursed for all humanity and thus endured the crucifixion. At the cross, the curse of the law was transferred from sinful humanity to the sinless Son of God. During his crucifixion, Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God forsook his son for a short time, the time when Christ took on himself the penalty for sin, and God in his holiness could not look upon that sin. He endured for a short time what we would have experienced for eternity otherwise. That Christ became loathsome to his Father in order to provide us with a way of salvation, shows us how much love God has for us. First John 3, 4 says, uh, John describes sin as lawlessness, as a disregard for the law of God. Now you go to verse 13, Galatians 3, 13. He's quoting Deuteronomy 21, 23. He's quoting another verse out of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verse 23. Now, in the Old Testament... If a man was executed, his body was put 
on a tree for a prescribed period of time so that everyone would pass by and see his body on that tree as a symbol that he was an outcast and rejected. The Jews didn't crucify criminals. They stoned them to death. If someone violated the law, their dead body was put on a tree as a sign of rejection. They were just a common criminal. They were stoned to death. But if they violated the law, their body was put on a tree to shame them. So write down by verse 13, Acts 5.30 and 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, where the scriptures describe Jesus on the cross as on a tree. And so Jesus was rejected, cursed, took our rejection, took our curse so that we might become one with him. He was the sin bearer. He was the curse bearer. And it was Christ who acted on our behalf. And he hung on a tree publicly displayed before mankind to say, this is the one who died so that you can live. He took our sin and our curse, the full wrath of God. He was executed as a criminal, a lawbreaker. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us. You're familiar with that term, redemption. It's a term out of the slave market. It means to buy back or to buy someone out at a cost of the person buying so that there can be freedom for the person bought. So redemption always requires that a price be paid so that something can be freely given. Christ paid the price so that he could freely give us redemption through Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to hold your place in Galatians and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And verse 18. 1 Peter 1, 18, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He's right by chapter 1, verse 18, write Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19, which says, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. And so what the scripture tells us is that we've got one of two destinations. In life and in eternal life, living under God's blessing or living under the curse. That's the only two choices. Saved lost. Those are the only two options. There's not, go in, but there's not an in-between. There's not a purgatory. Purgatory was created simply to raise money. That's why it was created. There's no reincarnation. You don't come back as a toad, work your way up to a horse, then become a nice dog, and then you become something else, and finally you get to be a human, and you get it right, and then you go into nothingness. 
The Bible is very clear. It says you're born and you choose Christ, you reject him, you're saved, you're lost, it's heaven or hell. It's pretty simple. You say, well, it can't be that simple. Who did Jesus talk to? Common people. You know why? There's a whole lot of us. Some people are too smart for God. Who did Jesus go to? He didn't go to the religious leaders who had it all together and had it all figured out and had their system. Jesus went to farmers and he went to peasants and he went to prostitutes and he went to thieves and he went to to tax collectors. He went to the common people. He went where the people lived and he shared good news. Could I submit to you, it doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't get any better than that. I mean, just look around. Get out tomorrow. Go to Walmart tonight at midnight. It's full of common people. Go sit in your car outside of Chick-fil-A tomorrow. Common people all the time going through. Well, some of them have got coats and ties. They're still common people. We all have the same fears, the same anxieties, the same concerns. We're all trying to raise our kids. We're all trying to figure out how we're going to get make ends meet. We're all trying to do something. You know, and Jesus came and said, I've got an answer. It's not 28 steps. It's not 14 different things. It's just one thing. It's me. Why? Because it has to be that way for the child and the theologian. It has to be that way for the suffer the little children to come unto me and to the Pharisee who is told, you must be born again. Does it amaze you that our God talked to children and embraced children and at the same time said to a learned man, a Pharisee, Nicodemus, Nicodemus, I'm going to tell you something you can't figure out. Nicodemus would have thought, I can figure out everything. I'm a Pharisee. I'm in the elite I know God better than other people know God. And he said, Nicodemus, it's real simple. You got to be born again. Huh? Huh? You can't do that. That's impossible. You just got to be born again. Well, that doesn't make any sense. That's right. As long as it makes sense to you, you're never going to have faith. You got to be born again. Isn't it amazing? A guy that had the first five books of the, of the Bible memorized, a guy who knew all the 600-plus laws that the Pharisees had, a guy who could answer all the questions, dot all the I's, cross all the T's, didn't understand it, but you can go right now into Kid's Rock and you can get a 9-year-old kid and you can explain to them that if you're going to come to Christ, you have to be born again, you have to be changed on the inside, you have to become a new person, and they get it. You know Why? Because God meets us where we are, not where we think we are. And there's mystery in that. One of the greatest theologians that ever lived was asked, what's the greatest truth you've ever ever heard? What's What's the most unfathomable thing, thought that you've ever had? What's the most unbelievable statement that's ever come to your mind? And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I want to tell you, You try to figure out why Jesus loves you, and you'll go crazy. 
because there's no reason why he should. There's no reason why he should answer any prayer. There's no reason why he should bless you. There's no reason why he should do anything. He does it because he died to love us. It doesn't get any better than that. There's blessing and there's curse. We have one or two destinies. Chapter 3, verse 14. In order that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Look at that. Now, how could there be two different ways of salvation if the blessing of Abraham is going to come to the Gentiles? Oh, by the way, don't lose me here. This is deep. Abraham was a Gentile until he became a Jew, and God made him a Jew. There was no Jewish nation until God set it aside. And God set it aside when he picked out a Gentile named Abraham and a Gentile named Sarah and said, I'm going to make a new nation of you, and you're going to be called my people, and my people will be the Jews. They'll be the Israelites. Isn't that something? A Gentile became a Jew, and the blessings of Christ come through Abraham, who was a Gentile and also a Jew. I guess there's not two ways. I guess there's just one. Is the promise of the Spirit through faith. So what's the blessing of Abraham? Let me give you three things. First of all, it's justification. That's being found in favor with God. By the way, Abraham was justified 430 years before the law came into existence. Justification. Abraham believed God. By the way, you do know that Abraham didn't have a Bible. Abraham didn't have a Gideon Bible. He didn't have a New American Standard. He didn't have a King James Schofield. He didn't even have a living Bible. Abraham didn't have a Bible. He just believed God. Why? Because God told him. God spoke to him. And he's justified. That's the blessing of salvation. The first thing is the blessing of salvation. Justification is the blessing of salvation. Secondly, there's eternal life. We're received into fellowship with God. That's the benefit of salvation. Uh, by the way, I don't think eternal life is the, is the end result. I, I, you know, well, I got saved so I can get to heaven. You got saved so you can live like Jesus now. Heaven's just a perk. I mean, if, if all you got saved was to get to heaven, then why didn't God save you and take you on to heaven right then? Because he's trying to make you more and more in the image of Jesus, so as Ron Dunn used to say, so that when you get to heaven, you won't be so shocked. God's just pruning and he's molding us. He's shaping us like a potter. And, And there's eternal life, which is the benefit of salvation. And then there's the promise of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit of God, which is the bonus of salvation. Remember the disciples? You know, I just love to read the Bible with new eyes sometimes. That's why I'll read different translations. I just love to read it with new eyes. I love to see how, how different translations put things. And, you know, if you just read if here's I know what you do because you do what I do. You're reading along going, okay, okay, all right, read that, read that before, okay, read that before, okay, read that before, okay, read that before, okay, read that before, read that before, read that before. Where'd that come from? Disciples 
had Jesus with him for three years. And on the last night, he sat down with them, and he told them something. He said, hey, guys, got something really cool to tell you. I got good news and bad news. Let me tell you the bad news first. I'm about to leave. Good news is I'm sending somebody. Bad news is I'm about to die. Good news is I'm going to die for you so that you can be saved. Bad news is I'm going to suffer. The good news is the Spirit of God's going to come in you, and he's going to guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit's going to empower you and equip you and gift you and allow you to live a life that you could never live in your flesh. You could never live on your own. You could never live by keeping the law. The Spirit of God's going to do that. That's the bonus. That's the perk. That's the gift. That's the blessing of salvation. I kind of like that. I hope you do. That we've been justified, we've been given eternal life, and we've been given the promise of the Spirit. Let me, let me give you just a closing thought here. And you ever get one of those, you've been pre-approved for a $25,000 credit limit card. You've been pre-approved for a $5,000 card. You've been pre-approved for this card. You know, I don't know. I mean, why am I getting three of those a week? Haley and Aaron get, the good thing is that they keep sending the pre-approved cards to our house in Albany. So I just go to the shredder. And I've sat down with both of our daughters and I've explained something to them. Listen, you don't even begin to understand what it means to get addicted and in bondage to slipping a credit card out and paying 18% interest at McDonald's. It ain't a happy meal at some point. I mean, when you think I'm still paying for the McDonald's I ate a month ago, at some point, it's not a 99-cent hamburger anymore. We make it convenient for people to be in financial bondage. Here's the assumption. The assumption is that we're going to send you this card, and you're pre-approved with a $1,000 credit limit or a $5,000 credit limit, and you could just go out, and I've watched... Students do this. I've watched young married couples do this. And they'll go out, and I mean in the first week, man, they're at Sears, they're at Home Depot, they're at Lowe's, they're everywhere. They're going, wow, this is great. We just spent $5,000, and we only got to pay $9 a month back for the next 48 years. Minimum payment only. And boy, about the time that couch wears out and that swing wears out and that car wears out and everything else wears out you're still paying for it and now you got to get something new see the assumption is you can pay for it so they give you this and then you get in bondage to it some people assume if i do certain things i can get god and then you get in bondage to doing those things. And you got to keep doing them because if you don't keep doing them, then somehow you're going to lose a blessing in the favor of God. And somehow you're not going to be saved. And somehow you're going to lose your salvation. If I don't keep doing all these things, I'm going to keep running on this treadmill. And you're treadmilling yourself to death and you're burning up calories, but you're not going anywhere. Can I give you some good news? Get off the treadmill. Tear up the debit and the credit cards in your spiritual life. And start a journey of faith. It's a whole lot more fun. There are no bills attached to it. 
It's just you on a journey with Jesus and the Holy Spirit inside of you, revealing and guiding to you the truth of the Word of God. And it is electrifying and it is exciting when you just realize, Lord, I don't know what else is going on in this world, but I know this, I've got Jesus. And whether I have my right mind or don't have my right mind, whether I have my health or don't have my health, whether I have money or don't have money, I've got one thing nobody can take away from me, and that's Jesus. And that's good news. You can forget a lot of things in life, but don't forget, it all boils down to Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I can't. He never said I could. He can. He always said he would. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Kent. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.